This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Get your Bibles open to the book of Revelation. Revelation 18. Revelation 18. Now, chapter 17 introduced the theme of the fall of the great city, the city of man. And as is typical in Revelation, John revisits this. He expands it. He, he fills it out. He, he, he categorizes this all under the fall of the moniker Babylon. It's chapter 18, what we're looking at today. Now, Babylon refers to Rome in John's day, but also stands for a much broader entity. And by way of introduction, I want to expound on this a little bit because Babylon takes such a central role in this book. I want to expand on the symbolic label that John has been using. Babylon, in short, is the anti-church. In short, it's the anti-church. Now, that could be a corrupt local municipality, It could be a reference to fallen culture in general or a decadent civilization. Revelation is far less concerned with us pinning a precise identity on it than describing what it's like so you can spot it wherever you see it. So Babylon isn't just one historical kingdom, one nation. Rather, it's a composite picture of many kingdoms. From Bible times, we could include Tyre, Sidon, Sodom, Nineveh. All of these are brought together under the moniker Babylon. And what makes Babylon what it is, is its corruption, its idolatry, its immorality. Now with that backdrop, we must go further and say Babylon is America. Canada, Britain, China, Malawi. Why? Because what characterizes Babylon is worldliness. Worldliness. The prophet Isaiah provides us a clear definition of that. He writes, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Worldliness is whatever makes wickedness look normal and righteousness look strange. That's important. Worldliness is whatever makes wickedness look normal and righteousness look strange. There's no shortage of that in America today. The sexual ethics of our day have been turned upside down, haven't they? Chastity is mocked. Promiscuousness, celebrated. Worldliness is whatever makes wickedness look normal and righteousness look strange. But worldliness is in every country. Worldliness is a threat to every Christian in every corner of the globe. Babylon is a threat to every believer. 
And chapter 18's unique contribution is to say to Christians, come out of her. Come out of her. Come out of Babylon. Look at verse 4, chapter 18. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so you will not receive any of her plagues. Now, Revelation was written to Christians so they would be overcomers, winners, victors. Our series theme is victory for that reason. John's writing the book to seven churches in Asia Minor as a way to say to them, look, this is the path to victory. You want to know how to win? Read the book and do it. If you want to win, you want to be an overcomer, you're going to need to come out of Babylon. Well, how do we do that? That'll be the question we take up in our time together. Before we do that, I want to read. Because this chapter preaches itself. So I want to read the chapter. It preaches itself. Let's look at chapter 18. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins. So you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Pour her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torment and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit enthroned as a queen. I'm not a widow, I will never mourn. Therefore, in one day, her plagues will overcome her death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour, your doom has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet cloth. Every sort of citron wood and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble. Cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and human beings sold as slaves. They will say, the fruit you longed for is gone from you. All your luxury and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, Woe, woe to you, great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. 
Every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors and all who earn their living from the sea will stand far off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, was there ever a city like this great city? They will throw dust on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out, woe, woe to you great city where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour, she has been brought to ruin. Rejoice over her, you heavens. Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, apostles and prophets, for God has judged her and the judgment she imposed, with the judgment she imposed on you. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, with such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of harpists and musicians, pipers and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. No worker of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's important people. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of prophets and of God's holy people, of all who have been slaughtered on the earth. So the injunction to God's people, the injunction to us, is come out of her. Come out of her. How do we do that? Three things. We need x-ray vision. We need wealth management. And we need a Donna wetsuit. We need x-ray vision, we need wealth management, and we need to don a wetsuit. Okay? Here we go. First, we need x-ray vision. Chapter 18 begins where chapter 17 left off. Driving home the point that appearances can be deceiving. Verse 3 contains three words that foreshadow how Babylon will be described in the coming verses. Rich, excessive luxuries. And John goes on to describe Babylon in great detail, vivid detail. And it's the personification of worldliness. It's got opulence, silver, gold, ivory, wine, fine flour, precious stones. Listen, Christian, don't be deceived. Worldliness is not repulsive on the face of it. It's attractive. It's not easily spotted. This is how Satan worked in the garden, did he not? I'm not going to put something repulsive in front of Adam and Eve's eyes and ears. I'm going to put something alluring, something beautiful, something tantalizing to the senses. But the reality underneath is a far cry. Look at verse 2. Babylon is demonic. You get the picture underneath the, the glitz and the glamour is a horrendous spiritual reality. Listen, we are far too easily impressed by appearances. Far too easily impressed. We need x-ray vision. We need spiritual sight. We need to ask God to help us see past the facade down into the reality. Imagine a society turning its back on God and outlawing the public influence of his word. Imagine further that in the generation afterward, the following trends resulted. Births to unmarried girls increased 500%. Reported child abuse increased 2,300%. 
The divorce rate rose by 350%. Illegal drug use among youths increased by 6,000%. Teenage suicide rose by 450%. And in 25% of viable pregnancies, the babies were surgically killed at the mother's request. Would it not be fair to suggest that a society having publicly rejected God's rule and experiencing such a complete breakdown of moral order had become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for unclean spirits. Would it not further be fair to suggest, according to our passage here, that such a society had fallen under the just judgment of God and would soon fall to his wrath unless it repents? The situation is not imaginary. The statistics cover the United States in the years between 1962 and 2003. Now, every country will have its own stories and statistics. Every country, because Babylon's present in every country. May God give us eyes to see it. Come out of her, my people. Come out of her. Do not share in her sins. We want to come out of her. We need spiritual sight. Look past the appearances down into the reality. What's there? What's there? Second, we need wealth management. The Bible is nuanced in its approach to wealth. On the one hand, we have to reckon with godly, wealthy individuals in the Bible, like Abraham and Job and Lydia. We have to reckon with the fact that as luxurious as Babylon is described here, the new heavenly Jerusalem is described in ways that portray staggering beauty as well. On the other hand, we have to deal with what Jesus says in Matthew 19. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's hard for rich people to enter God's kingdom. By world standards, most of us fit that. So how do we bring these things together? Are are any of these accounted for in Revelation 18? I think they are. There are some details in the text that we need to pay attention to. Solid, godly wealth management that avoids worldliness will involve at least these three things. On the one hand, no boasting. Look at verse 7. Give her as much torment and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit enthroned as a queen. I'm not a widow. I will never mourn. Notice the the worldly person boasts about their wealth without saying a word to another person. Did you see that? Not a word to another person. She says to herself, look at all that I have. Look at all that I have. In her heart, she says this. It's easy to avoid flaunting wealth in front of someone. It's a whole lot more difficult to avoid flaunting your wealth in front of yourself. In Babylon's own words, the boasting expresses itself in finding security in their wealth. I sit enthroned as a queen. I'll never mourn. I'm set. I'm secure. Last time I checked, 
Cancer attacks people of every income bracket. Aging, the effects of that applies across the board. And you know what else? Attacks people from every income bracket and age bracket. The judgment of God. If you insist on boasting in your wealth, you're not safe from the judgment to come. It's kind of the point of the chapter. No boasting. Second, avoid ill-gotten gain. Look at verse 11. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple silk and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood, the articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron and marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh, frankincense, of wine and olive oil, fine flour and wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, carriages, human beings sold as slaves. So we're introduced to the underbelly of Babylon's operation. And what we see here implies ethical breaches aplenty. The book of Proverbs is replete with wisdom regarding ill-gotten gain. Proverbs 10.2 says, ill-gotten treasures have no lasting value but righteousness delivers from death. Proverbs 21.6, a fortune made by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a deadly snare. Now resist the urge to check out at this point and say, well, you know what, I haven't participated in any of that. No gotten gain here. There's much more that needs to be unpacked within this category of ill-gotten gain. Now, we can state the obvious ones. Cheating on taxes, taking things that don't belong to you. Straightforward, right? Now, if that's you, come out of Babylon. Come out of Babylon. But there are more sinister threats that tempt us to ill-gotten gain. Ill-gotten gain occurs when you ignore your family in pursuit of wealth. That is ill-gotten gain. Or you ignore your privilege to rest and worship on the Lord's day in pursuit of wealth. Now, the church has always acknowledged deeds of necessity. Throughout the history of the church, they use this kind of phrase, deeds of necessity, often talking about those in the medical field or law enforcement, careers of that nature. But let me tell you something. Particularly, if you've not settled into a career yet, be reluctant to choose a career that takes you away from your church on Sundays. Be reluctant to choose a career that takes you away from your church Sundays. Here's another sinister threat. Gambling. Gambling. Yearly gambling expenditures exceed expenditures on films, books, amusement, and music entertainment combined. Even though the lottery ticket purchaser is five times more likely to be eaten by a shark than win the state lottery. That's the truth. Here's another, another sinister threat tempting us to ill-gotten gain. Neglecting to tithe to your church, to give to missions, 
to those in need. When pastors start talking about giving, everybody clams up because they think they're fundraising. Okay, let me, I have said this before, I'll say it again. When I preach on giving, I preach for the good of your soul. Because the Bible's take on this is clear. You need to give a whole lot more than any church needs to receive. Let me say it again. Your soul needs you to give a whole lot more than any church needs to receive. Giving is part of our development as Christians. It's how we grow in godliness. It's how we mature spiritually. Your soul needs you to give a whole lot more than any church organization needs to receive. Another place we sacrifice for the sake of ill-gotten gain, we sacrifice time needed for spiritual disciplines for the sake of making more money. I'll get up early and I'll get to work rather than I'll get up early and get in the word. It's all ill-gotten gain. Come out of her, my people. Come out of Babylon. Third, skip mourning the loss of wealth. Just skip it. Skip it. Verses 9 to 19, there are three distinct groups of people who benefited from their partnership with Babylon who grieve and mourn over her collapse. Verse 9, when the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. The merchants of the earth, verse 11, the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Verse 17b, every sea captain, all who travel by ship, the sailors, and all who earn their living from the sea will stand far off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, was there ever a city like this great city? They will throw dust on their heads with weeping and mourning cry out. You got the kings of the earth, you got the merchants of the sea, you got every sea captain, all mourning, all grieving. Why? Not over their sinful collusion, but over the loss of their wealth. How much we love something isn't really tested until we lose it. It's actually a great test of idolatry. You probably notice the term adultery in in all this sexual imagery throughout the book of Revelation. This This is not literal or exclusively literal. It's metaphorical. It's the image used not just in Revelation but throughout the Bible to convey the idea of idolatry. Idolatry is simply ascribing to someone or something a level of commitment and affection that ought to be reserved for God alone. It's why adultery works so well as the image behind it. Now, our, idol, our hearts are idol factories. We can make an idol out of anything. There's so many people and causes and things out there that we can very easily ascribe our commitment and affection to in disproportionate ways. But we often don't know what they are. We often don't know what they are until we lose them or we're asked to give them up. And our sharp emotional responses to loss help us locate our idols. You see this clearly exemplified with children. I see it in my own children. How do I see it in my own children? 
We had a little to-do last night. (laughs) Saw it in my children. When some privilege is taken away. Yeah. (laughs) You can ask them about it. (laughs) Or they hear the word no. But my children are wonderful mirrors. I carry those same tendencies with me. And you do too. Our response to lost access, lost privileges, or simply the word no, will tell us a lot about where our idols are located. Now, when I look at Revelation 18's teaching on wealth management, don't boast in your wealth. Avoid looking at it as your security. Avoid ill-gotten gain. Don't mourn over the loss of it. When I look at these things, I think so many of our problems with wealth would disappear if we simply gave it away with eye-popping generosity. John Wesley was famous for this. He says, when I have money, I get rid of it quickly, lest it worm its way into my heart. In 1635, a guy by the name of Robert Kane was a member of the First Congregational Church of Boston. Uh, He was doing pretty well as a businessman, but in 1635, his elders disciplined him for the sin of greed. Now, I don't think they excommunicated him. I think they suspended him from the Lord's Supper and publicly admonished him. Uh, so, So the elders disciplined him for the sin of greed. Now, the question is, how do they do that? How'd they do that? Uh, It was because he was selling his product at a 6% profit. And the church had decided three or four years before that, the church had decided that Christians in their church would be able to sell their products at only a 4% profit. So when they found out he was selling at a 6% profit, they disciplined him for the sin of greed. Now, some of you are thinking, where are we going here? Where are we going? Now, when I first heard that, I thought, well, this is just primitive, (laughs) This is stupid. This is primitive. But as I thought more about it, you know what? This is not as actually, this is not as stupid as it sounds. Because at least they realize something. You know, when you're committing adultery, you know you're committing adultery. But when you're being greedy, you never know. So they sat down and they thought it out. And they thought, well, Jesus talks about money all the time. They thought, Jesus uh, tells to us, you know, watch out for greed. Watch out for it. Watch out for it. You're always saying, giving your money away. Uh, Don't spend all your money on yourself. So the leaders of the church thought to themselves, well, some business practices then must be greedy. Some lifestyles must be greedy. But how are we going to know? So they sat down. They made some decisions. And it was mutual. It was consensual. And everybody in the church knew about it. Now, look, I'm not saying that we could all get together and mutually and consensually agree on an acceptable percentage of profit. Our economic system is a little more complicated than they were in the 1600s. But I am wondering, if you ever stop to think and ask questions like, how are we spending our money? How much are we giving away? How much are we keeping? Or simply, have you authorized another Christian in your life to ask you those questions? In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he talks about greed being a sin of the eye. A sin of the eye. And what he's saying is that greed is a sin we're most likely to be guilty of and not know it. 
means we cannot trust ourselves. We cannot trust ourselves to accurately determine if we are guilty of the sin of greed. That is the power and the deception of earthly wealth. So if we're going to come out of Babylon, we need x-ray vision. We need spiritual sight. We need to see past appearances down into the spiritual reality of things. We need sound wealth management where we're skipping the boasting. We resist the urge to see wealth as a security blanket. We avoid ill-gotten gain, both in egregious forms and subtle ones. And we skip mourning over the loss of wealth. Finally, if we're going to come out of Babylon, we need to don a wetsuit. What is this guy talking about? Wetsuit. How do we come out of Babylon? How do we come out of Babylon? In 1951, Richard Niebuhr published a book that has remained relevant for 70 years now. The title is Christ and Culture. And the basic challenge the book wrestles with is the fact that one of the most difficult and important decisions for Christians to make is a relationship to the world, to society in general, to culture in general. He writes this, the question of Christianity and civilization is by no means a new one. The problem has been an enduring one through all the Christian centuries. The repeated struggles of Christians with this problem have yielded no single Christian answer. And that's true. So what he did is he scoured church history to find out the ways in which pastors and churches and elders and leaders and Christians have dealt with this. What is my relationship to the world supposed to be? What is it characterized by? And so he, he comes through a number, he traces a number of options, number of ways throughout church history that Christians have dealt with this. The first option that Niebuhr presented is Christ against culture. Christ against culture. Here, Christianity opposes culture and seeks to avoid worldly influences. You can think of monasteries. Think of monasteries. Complete separation. Complete separation. That's Christ against culture. Second, the Christ of culture. Kind of the opposite. Christianity adapts to societal standards and demands. Acceptance. Maybe assimilation into the culture at large. Another view is Christ above culture. In which Christians partner with the world for its betterment. The fourth view is Christ the transformer of culture. In which believers seek to Christianize society so that it more and more reflects the kingdom of Christ. Now, all of these views are advocated by this or that Christian who claimed the Bible as the word of God. In setting forth his first option, Christ against culture, Niebuhr notes that this view is exemplified in the writings of John. One could hardly find a stronger statement of biblical opposition to the world than what's stated in Revelation 18. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Come out of her, my people. Get out of there. Lest your hearts, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. So a simple reading of those verses would seem to urge Christians to adopt the very negative attitude toward the world. But this attitude isn't the only one in the Bible. The Apostle Paul urges us to appreciate good things wherever we may find them. He says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Christians should not be inhibited from enjoying the musical genius of Mozart, however ungodly the composer was. The dirge, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, takes note of what the world was before it fell. It implies something. It was good before. And it was 
It's precious to God, his own possession. The angel's hostility is directed not to the physical earth, but to sinful worldly culture. What God hates is Babylon as a sinful, idol-worshiping, sensually perverse world system in rebellion to heaven. And so it's important for us, Christian, I want you to hear this. It's important for us to remember the most virulent atheist, the most arrogantly seductive prostitute, and the most cynical abortion doctor all bear the stamp of the image of God. It was in this world that Jesus taught, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. There is simultaneously a Christian integration into the world and a separation from the world. Russell Moore uses the term engaged alienation. Engaged alienation. Engaged alienation. Important example of this is in God's words to his people when they were in Babylon in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah, God says, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they, may, they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So thinking along the lines of Niebuhr, this supports his Christ above culture view in which the moral and cultural resources of God's kingdom are employed for the general aid of society. Now notice in there, the exiles were not called to transform or somehow redeem pagan Babylon, but rather they were called to be good and loyal citizens serving its king so long as no conflict arose in their obligations to God. This was Daniel's policy. Daniel served loyally inside the wicked King Nebuchadnezzar's administration. Daniel went about his duties so long as they didn't conflict with God's word. Jesus likewise encourages Christians to do good in the world. Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. These passages show that the Christian call to separation does not mean absolute withdrawal from society. We don a wetsuit. John 17, Jesus put it this way. He said, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they're not of the world any more than I'm of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world. Don't take them out. But that you protect them from the evil one. We don a wetsuit. Jesus has sent us into the world We swim in it. It's not his desire we get back in the boat. But we wear a wetsuit. It keeps the water and the effects of it off our bodies. We affect the water. We affect the things in the water. But it does not affect us. We don't a wetsuit. 20 to 30 years after the last apostle died, John... There was a letter written called the Epistle to Diognetus. 
And the letter is grappling with the cause of Christianity's rapid growth in the Roman Empire at this period of time. Christianity was beginning to grow exponentially at this point. Here's a portion of that letter. Christians are indistinguishable from other men, either by nationality, language, or customs. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own or speak a strange dialect or follow some outlandish way of life. And yet there is something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. They play their full role as citizens, but labor under all the disabilities of aliens. Any country can be their homeland, but for them, their homeland, wherever it may be, is a foreign country. Like others, they marry and have children, but they do not expose them. They share their meals, but not their wives. They live in poverty, but enrich many. They are totally destitute, but possess an abundance of everything. There are four basic observations that this outsider makes of Christians in the early second century. First, there's a complete absence of partiality within their communities. Christianity gives you a higher identity than your ethnicity or social class. In fact, you know you've got a higher identity than your ethnicity or social class when you can celebrate the good in other ethnicities and other social classes, and you can be critical of the bad in your own ethnicity and social class. If you can't celebrate the good in others and find the bad in your own, your ethnicity, your social class is likely your highest identity. These early Christians had a higher identity. Higher identity. Which is why geography and who came to be a part of them was of little significance to them. Little significance. Second, they had a high view of life. In the Roman Empire, discarding female babies and deformed male babies was legal, morally accepted, and widely practiced by all social classes. There's a letter dating back to about 1 BC written by a Roman aristocrat named Hilarion to his pregnant wife, Alice. I want to read it to you. He writes to her saying, Know that I am in Alexandria, and do not worry if they all come back and I remain in Alexandria. I ask and beg you to take care of our baby son. She's pregnant. And as soon as I receive payment, I shall send it up to you. If you are delivered of a child before I come home, if it is a boy, keep it. If a girl, discard it. You have sent me word. Don't forget me. How can I forget you? I beg you not to worry. You see this flippant and cruel mindset that occupied many within the Roman Empire. If you deliver a boy, keep it. If a girl, discard it. This this led to um, an imbalance in gender ratios in the Roman Empire. Some scholars estimate that at one point in time, there were 140 males for every 100 females in the Roman Empire. That imbalance can only be accounted for if tampering was involved. But abortion and infanticide weren't practiced by Christians. In fact, some historians have attempted census reconstructions within the Christian communities and have found this disparity between male and female to be lacking. 
this sacredness toward human life created a magnetism within the Christian community. Every human life was equally valued. Third, they had an unusual view of sex. In the secular Roman Empire, married men were permitted sexual freedom, but women were expected to remain sexually faithful to their husbands. Husbands were not required, not expected to give that back to their wives. The Christians at this time were very different. Very different. Marital faithfulness was expected from both husband and wife. And as a result, women within Christian communities enjoyed a whole lot more marital security and equality than they did their pagan neighbors. This created a magnetism. Fourth, this outsider to Christianity observes that these Christians were radically generous. They lived with eye-popping generosity. The author's making the case that these four factors were driving Christianity's rapid growth in the Roman Empire in the early second century. I think they heeded the call of Revelation 18. Come out of her. Come out of her. Don't participate in that. Come out of her, my people. Now, none of these four unique markers in this letter to Diognetus, none of those four markers were the goal. They were byproducts of something else. They were byproducts of these early Christians believing, being transfixed by, consumed by Jesus Christ. I think one of the most basic things we forget are the transforming effects of everyday encounters with Jesus. All throughout the Gospels, we see this. When one truly encounters Jesus, they're changed. They're changed. And so Jesus is the focus, and all these other things start to take place. When you see Jesus, you're changed. This is why in each ministry here at ABC, we seek to lift high the word of Christ. Lift high the word of Christ. In so doing, we encounter Christ and like water over a jagged rock, it gradually shapes each of us. Let's pray. We ask for that, Lord, that we would be changed that we would fix our gaze on Jesus, that we would lift up Jesus to others, that we would see the life he's called us to. And the result of this would be your people coming out of Babylon. Lord, I pray that as you keep us in this world, we would recognize that because you've given us your word, the world will hate us that doesn't mean withdraw. We remain salt, light. I pray through the faithfulness of your people, empowered by your spirit, that there would be something distinct 
about the way in which your people inhabit this earth. And Lord, we know the result of that is preceded by a focus on Jesus. Put him in front of our eyes, Lord, every day, every day. Put him in front of our eyes. We ask it in his name. Amen.